You're listening to Just a Tangent Podcast with Tyler Brewer and Greg Miller, where we talk about movies, TV, and everything in between. Okay, we are rolling. This is Just a Tangent Podcast. Well, I was oh. just for like editing purposes. Oh, oh okay. Well, no, never mind. That's okay. Well, this might we might as well just go into it. So, my name is Greg Miller. I'm Tyler Brewer, and this is Just a Tangent Podcast, where we talk about movies, TV, and just about anything in between. That's called Just a Tangent because uh, we tend to get off topic and just kind of talk about whatever uh, whatever comes to mind. But we try to keep it focused yeah. on movies and TV. Uh, so, Tyler, uh, there is a big trailer that just came out recently yeah. that I have been super excited for. It's been out for a couple of days now, uh, but it's the Spider-Man No Way Home trailer. It's all over the internet. There's a whole bunch of memes and stuff that came from it, but uh, more or less just the fans have been really excited because I think we're going to get what we actually want to see with yeah. a Spider-Verse live-action movie. Yeah, that's the way it's looking it's going to go. Uh, I know you were really excited for it. We've been talking about it for literally months. Yeah. And it leaked online from CinemaCon. And I think Sony just decided, well, it's out there in this very crappy version from someone's yeah, cell phone. Yeah, the, the so, leak was horrible. Yeah, so they, they basically thought... And this, this has happened in the past. Uh, and they basically just thought, well, let's just release the whole thing. So they released it. Uh, I can't remember, just a couple nights ago, but I texted you i think you were riding your one wheel around around town i was, I was actually driving oh. and he sent it to me and then called me he was like hey i just sent you the spider-man no way home trailer i literally pulled over and watched <laughs> it i was like five minutes from my house so i probably could have just gone home and watched it there but I, I pulled over into a parking space and just watched it and was like just geeking out because spider-man's my favorite superhero yeah so but what were your what were your first impressions? Just just real short. Uh, it reminded me a lot of One More Day storyline from the comics, which I was aware of prior to seeing that trailer, and which is uh, in in the comics, Peter reveals his identity by himself to the public in the Civil War era of the comics, and so everybody mm-hmm. knows he's Spider Man, and it does give him some trouble. And at that point, he's an adult, and it does give him some trouble. So he does go to Doctor Strange and ask. Yeah. For him to basically make no one remember that that happened. Yeah, it's like a mix between going to Doctor Strange and Mephisto, which we won't we won't get yeah. into all the comic book stuff. But it is cool to see that storyline play out because in the comics it actually leads to um, it leads to Aunt May getting shot. So I, I saw a couple people that are like, "Oh, what's the big deal of you know people know he's Peter Parker?" It's like, well, it's because it affects his his everyday life. Um, the cool thing about this storyline being played out though, is that they're making it into like a multiverse movie because I mean, if you watch the trailer, Dr. Dr. Strange does a spell. It seems to go wrong, which kind of, um, introduces, uh, characters from the two other Spider-Man franchises. One being, uh, um, Tobey Maguire, the other being Andrew Garfield. You don't actually see either of them in the trailer, but you see characters from their respective movies. Yeah, and the actors that portrayed yeah. them in those respective movies. Yep. And, you know, I think it, it stems off the popularity of the animated Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse Which was movie. a fantastic film. Yeah, we'll probably talk about that. Yeah, we'll be talking about that probably in our animated uh, episode that we're going to have, where we talk about animated films like Pixar and, 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 and Funimation and things like that. Yeah. And... um 
I think just the the money shot at the end with Doc Ock was pretty great. Yeah, Al- Alfred Molina's Doctor Octopus from Spider-Man the Sam Raimi universe, yeah. like, and that line where he's like, "Hello, Peter," that was like, I was like, man, they have so much potential with this movie. Yeah, and so uh, so far in the MCU, that everybody's you know the Marvel movies, Marvel Cinematic Universe, everybody's been used to so far has been known as the Infinity Saga, which ended with Endgame, and. Then the next saga, I believe the sequel, uh, the the sequel Spider-Man film with Tom Holland. Yeah, Far From Home. Yeah, Far From Home is the first one that's in the new saga that's mm-hmm. part of the multiverse. I, I think they're just going to go with a multiverse saga, and that also includes the Disney Plus series, which you know is heavily influenced with not only um, the uh, WandaVision show, but also the Loki show really dove deep into who the big new villain is, which is Kang the Conqueror, and yep. multiverses and multiple versions of the same person, how yeah. they can look the same or different. And I'm really excited to see this in live action because it's just a, a comic book-heavy concept that I've really enjoyed in comics. Yeah. And I'm excited to see it, it gives the them, It gives the movie makers an opportunity to to bring back, uh, like, in a, in a realistic, like reality grounded um matter like so there's clearly people like hugh jackman who played characters um so for example we'll just use hugh jackman so hugh jackman played wolverine wolverine's not actually in the mcu yet but everybody knows him as being wolverine and he is a marvel character yeah and now you know since time has passed and disney has acquired different rights and and franchises those characters can now be explained into the in the MCU through the multiverse um, thing that's going to happen, and so that's kind of cool to see those characters reprise their roles in the MCU officially when they weren't before. So, um, but that's kind of just a tangent. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but today, what we're actually going to be talking about this episode, uh, which I guess does relate to. Um, superhero movies a little bit yeah, is we'll get into game changers yeah. movies that were game changers um you know these these are just some movies that we have seen that we think really changed the game in a specific genre or or a specific aspect of the film um that really uh set up future movies yeah and in one way or another something that these films did inspired or changed the future of filmmaking in Hollywood and things like that. Yep. Uh, so right now, Greg and I just each have three movies. We're just going to alternate and we just, you know, did some research on them. And the first one we're going to talk about is Jaws. Uh, Jaws came out in. <laughs> Greg, Greg, you might get dinged for bum, co- bum, bum. copyright song. <laughs> Because that's all it is, is two notes. Um, Jaws came out in 1975. The book came out in 1974. And studio wanted to immediately adapt it. Uh, apparently, it was a really well well done book and a, a bestseller. Because typically, that's what some requirements are for movie adaptations of books. Um, the reason I want to do this one is because it was the first summer blockbuster. And the reason everybody calls them blockbusters is because at the theater, the line to get in went around the block. And so some very interesting details about Jaws and how it was created is the fact that it went into production with no script. They wanted to adapt a book 
that took eight to 15 hours to read, depending on the reader. And it, they went into it with no script. They had the characters, they had what the characters are supposed to be like, obviously from the book, but you can't make an hour and a half to a two and a half hour movie with no script. So it went into production, got funding. They found a director. They, f- they found Steven Spielberg as the director. And at the time he only had three films under his belt and he wasn't the legend that he is today. And actually the first film was a short film in 1968. Then the duel, well, duel came out in 1971, which is a fantastic movie that he had very heavy creative control of. And due to his creative control, it made it even better. Then he did Sugarland Express. I'm not too knowledgeable on that one. And then in 1975, he did Jaws. So another fun fact about Jaws is that they had 50 days to film. And it ended up stretching into 150 days of filming. They tripled their film time, mainly due to complications with cast, crew, the shark, and basically the ocean that they were trying to work with. Uh, At the time, if you wanted to make a movie that was based on water, you did it in a big lake with a huge green screen behind it, a river with some backdrop that you can blur out in the background. Or I think in the 70s is when they first started at the studios to get the parking lots that are tilted. And if they wanted to do stuff like Pirates of the Caribbean, they filled those parking lots with water. And actually there's a wall there that is a green screen. They put the boat in the water. It's normally just a, just a parking lot. So, but Steven Spielberg was adamant about filming this at sea, getting the real background, making it feel effective, drawing people in. He thought that you would definitely be able to tell if you filmed this in a lake. So, from the complications of the stretched out time, the cast and crew were at each other's throats pretty often. The captain of the Orca, the character, he was drunk pretty much the whole time during filming. Uh, he was having some very bad personal issues, mainly with IRS. And even though he is by far the most entertaining character of the film, and in my opinion, the person that makes it, um, Brody and and some of the other characters, they, they definitely pull it in really well. Their, their acting is very good. But I think, you know, the the fisherman, Captain of the Orca, is the best character. And I also think the Orca itself is a character of the boat. It has, if you really pay attention, it has its own personality. Some of the things it does, you know, breaks down, has problems. It's their home, and basically, it's like with Avengers, they have Avengers Tower. The Orca is like the Avengers Tower of that film. Um, Some other really interesting things that happened is the shark didn't work for three quarters of the filming. The shark is all animatronic. And when, as soon as they put it in the salt water, it had some very, very big issues with operating properly. So they had a ton of issues with that. And they named the shark Bruce mainly because <laughs> that was Steven Spielberg's lawyer's name. That's funny. And, uh, so they had to go into this concept where, they had to find a way to make it entertaining and scary without showing you the shark. And the way they did that is one of the ideas Steven had was with the yellow barrels. So if you, if you haven't seen the film, please do. It's a classic, but they, they need to see where the shark is. It's a 25 foot great white shark. That's been terrorizing this beach town. And so uh, they go out and try and basically hunt it and catch it to get rid of this problem. People have been attacked and or killed. And so 
they can't really keep track of it. They try shooting it with a harpoon. It breaks the line. So the captain of the orca, he has barrels on on board. And I'm sure they have a purpose. I'm guessing maybe when they pull into port to, to a dock, he can put those over the side so it bumps the dock and doesn't damage the boat. But he ties a line to it, shoots the shark with a harpoon, and it pulls the barrel over. And it's basically a bobber, so it's going to make the shark really tired. It's going to keep him close to the surface. He can't dive. Well, the shark is so powerful, it drags the barrel under. And eventually, he does tire out. Barrels come back to the surface. So really, you don't see a shark for until the, the towards the end of the third act. Which is crazy, because it's a shark movie. Yes, it is, <laughs> it is a shark movie, and you don't see a shark. But I, I think the way they pull it off... And make it very suspenseful and scary and crazy without even seeing the shark is is incredibly well done. And that's all credit to Spielberg and his team. Um, Principal photography, like I said, had stretched into basically half of a year. Their budget was also stretched. Their budget originally from the studio was $4 million, and they stretched it out and ended up spending a crazy, at the time, $9 million. So they more than doubled their budget. The studio was ready to pull the plug, fire Spielberg. Basically, he wouldn't have become what he is today if, it, if he would have messed this up. Um, yeah, because movies, movies then were less about, uh, like, all the crazy production stuff, which is really what drives, uh, drives a budget up in a movie today, they were more so just worried about telling stories and being that this is the first blockbuster that kind of made people see like, well, crap, like we can actually make a, a lot of money with these. So, you know, it's kind of the principle of, uh, you know, you, you get out what you put in. So, yeah. Uh, at the time in 1975, just to put this into perspective and no other film had done this because like I said, this is the first summer blockbuster that ever existed. They spent $9 million, which was more than double what they were allowed. The domestic box office here in the U.S., it made $260 million. Which is insane. Yeah, and the international was $210 million. So it, the international box office almost matched the domestic. And at the time, it's different now, but at the time, domestic was always bigger than international. But now, uh, unfortunately, China is a big part of why Hollywood does what it does and makes films to please that crowd because the international box office beats domestic now currently. So worldwide box office combined jaws made $470 million. So almost half a billion dollars. That's crazy. That is, yeah, that's absolutely insane. I mean, so what, what year did that come out? 1975. 1975. So, I mean, I wish I could, I, I'll find an inflation calculator and see what that would be in today's Still, money. Still, that's that's crazy. But well, while you're doing that, um, one of the one of the movies I wanted to bring to the table as far as being a game changer was the first Toy Story movie. And the reason why that was a game changer is because it was the first full length 3D uh, computer generated movie. So it's uh, up until that point, animated movies were primarily um, primarily done with 2D hand-drawn. Each frame is done by an artist animation. Like it was very, it's a very manual process. It took a ton of time because you're drawing the character and their motion and their animation by hand along with the background for each frame. Um, okay, real quick. Yeah. Back to Jaws just for a second. 
So in today's money, that's two billion three hundred and eighty four million nine hundred and seventy thousand four hundred forty six dollars and ten cents. That's insane. So just oh, imagine God. I mean I, I you would have to also inflate the budget, but that in today's world, imagine a movie going tw- you know, more than doubling its budget and somebody almost getting fired and then it just being an absolute hit. Yeah. And making two bi- two point three billion at the box office. Now I let me see. I want to see how much money, Tyler. Can you look up how much money Toy Story made? Yep. Because I actually I don't uh, have that written down. But um, the the runtime of uh, Toy Story was an hour and twenty one minutes. And up until that point, like three D um, computer generated animation was it was a thing, but it wasn't uh, it, it wasn't used for full length films because it was just too um, the 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 programs and the technology was just too new at that time to really be able to have a full length, um, 3d computer generated movie. Um, which is why toy story was such a, such a groundbreaking, um, achievement. Not only that, but so Steve jobs is the one who, if my information serves me correctly, he's the one who started Pixar initially. It was, it was his, um, along with some, some other people in, in a team, but um, in let me see. The budget for Toy Story to make was thirty million, and it, at the box office, it made three hundred and seventy-three million. Yeah, so and it came out in ninety-five. Like there was this technology was new. It was really like it was top tier. It was pretty expensive to do, which is why it, it had never been done in a full-length film. Um, but if you look at movies now, there are very few movies that are done with legitimate 2D hand-drawn animation. I mean, a lot of times it's, e- even if it's hand-drawn, it's hand-drawn uh, on a com- on a computer uh, with, with, you know, like a an artist's tablet, which is, is still insane. But up until that point, it was a lot of the times just done with, with pencil, paper, whatever medium they used, hand-drawn by artists. And the reason why it was so game-changing for animation is because with CG animation, you can create character models and then have points of articulation. And it's a lot, it's a lot, um, I don't want to say simpler of a process, but it's a lot more efficient process to animate things because you have a character model that you can then move and basically pose as though you were posing like an action figure or like a modeling doll. Um, and it makes it a lot easier to do those animations instead of having to hand draw them. And the style is just different. But if you look at animated movies now, almost all of them are the, the 3d CG animated movies because that was just basically adopted and toy story was the front runner with that. So a couple facts here. Um, so obviously Steve jobs, uh, started Pixar or at least, Owned it. He started Pixar after acquiring the computer graphics division from Lucasfilm in 1986. And then Steve Jobs sold the hardware division of Pixar in 1990. And then in May, on May 5th, 2006, Steve sold Pixar to Disney. Um, so that's how Disney acquired it. Now, Pixar always worked with Disney in conjunction. Like um, Toy Story was a, considered a Disney movie, but it's Disney Pixar. That's why it's... Uh, kind of differentiated from just the regular Disney animated movies because Pixar is specifically 3D CG animation. So, um, 
But another thing, uh, Pixar now has like 23 to 24 films, like full-length films. I don't remember the exact count at this point. Um, there have been a couple that came out in the last couple of years that I think went, I think Luca was yeah, exclusively a, on streaming. Yeah, there's been a couple that slid under the radar because of streaming, I think. Yeah. It's hard to keep track anymore. Yeah, but they feel, have, they have like a ton of short films. Yeah, and, I feel like they've been doing like uh, two or three a year and uh, along with the short films, which are also fantastic, actually. They're, they're pretty entertaining. Oh, yeah. No, the, the films themselves are great. The, the first Toy Story, as far as like how things are, are shaded and the textures um you know it's it doesn't quite hold up to today's standards but as far as story goes the story is awesome the actual animation and like the movement of everything is totally on par um and it inspired not only pixar but then you have dreamworks divisions that are making fantastic films like how to train your dragon that's all 3d animation and pixar really created some technologies and software that pioneered that um now it's it's really the the primary uh it, it's the primary medium for for animated movies yeah and you really wouldn't have probably three quarters of the catalog of kids movies that you currently have today without toy story yeah you know if toy story didn't make it and you know it didn't do that well it, they wouldn't have continued to make them at all there wouldn't be sequels there wouldn't you know pixar probably wouldn't have gone that far it wouldn't have gotten sold uh, and yeah, it, it, they're definitely pioneers for that industry and not only just animated movies, but the technology that they use in Toy Story, a lot of the people that created those characters and made the animations run as smoothly as they did. Um, a lot of that technology carried over into live action films. Yeah. And, and I don't want people to, to think that, um, that there's any less work that goes into 3D animation. It, again, it is easier to have a character model to to base that off of and it's a little bit from my understanding easier to animate them however because you're doing 3d animation you you then get into things like simulations so for example in monsters inc with with sully you he's basically covered in fur which is which is basically hair and so all of those hairs whenever he moves are simulated to look like how for example like a the hairs on a dog would move whenever they run you know, then you start getting into these more and more complex situations that in order for the 3D animation to look good, it has to uh, it has to be done. So you're, you're looking at um, properly rendering lighting and shading and textures, whereas with 2D animation, um, that was still an aspect, but it was more an artistic choice and less of a necessity. So 3D animation is still extremely difficult. Um, those people are, are, those people are a hundred percent artists. Like it is, it is crazy, but, uh, enough about Pixar. What's the next, uh, next one you got? Next for me is the born identity and might seem like something that's not that significant, especially today with as many action movies as we have. But the reason we have some of those action movies is because of the born identity. So I wanted to go back and give some credit to, the book and the film, the, the the story writing of the film is actually pretty decent. Uh, just a quick overview. It's based on a book from 1980 from Robert Ludlum. And the film came out in 2002. It was modernized. Uh, basically, a fisherman in the Mediterranean finds an American with two bullet wounds uh, and rescues him. And the American has amnesia and can't remember where he's from or who he is. He gets dropped off in Europe, makes his way through Europe, and 
he slowly remembers who he is and actually does like kind of an investigation on himself. Uh, he finds an apartment with multiple IDs, multiple names, same picture, and it's him. And he can't really remember who he is. He does, however, well, I wouldn't say he remembers, but he he goes to get put into custody by police and he just has a reaction that he almost claims is out of his control that he's acting just purely on instinct and he basically kicks the shit out of these police or security guards at a bank that he is in and from there the investigation just keeps on going so um the reason that i think this film is a game changer is for sure the action prior to this um, the 80s and 90s one-man army films were starting to die off by this point in 2002. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, they had all been seen and done. You know, one guy, whether it be Schwarzenegger, Stallone, Will, Willis, um, Jean-Claude Van Damme, you know, they have, there's, there's some military veteran or current active military per person that is just better than the rest. And they have some damsel, whether it be a, adult or their daughter that they have to rescue from some former associate that is now yeah evil that, that's basically all, all that, the plots <laughs> yeah, that that cookie cutter take on action films was getting very stale at this point and also the action in the films went from not not only one man army gun you know gunfights and stuff but just hand-to-hand -hand combat stuff it was very i like to describe it as mike tyson um whereas you know, it was just big heavy hitters. And then this film, you get Matt Damon, who was in good shape, but he wasn't, he wasn't a roided out action hero of the eighties, like the rest of those people. And he had a smaller frame and they used that to their advantage and made the action very fast and fluid. And basically what that brought in is a stunt coordinator named Jeff Amada and Jeff is responsible for a ton of movies. If you look at his filmography of films he's been involved with, it is very, very extensive. Um, some that I'd like to mention, though, is like Furious 7, all the hand-to-hand -hand combat in that. All the Bourne movies. Uh, the Book of Eli, which is one of Greg's favorites. Yeah, that is definitely in either top five or top ten. Yeah, he's responsible for the action in that. Uh, the 2003 Daredevil with Ben Affleck. Um, and... Mr. I don't know if I said Mr. and Mrs. Smith yet. No, 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 yet. I don't think he did Mr. and Mrs. Smith as well, which there's a ton of good hand hand and firearms combat in that in that film. Um, along with uh, Hannah from 2011, which is like a, f a female John Wick type film. Um, so that type of action from there became very popular. And another film that uses it very well is Taken. Taken, you know, people went to see it not really knowing what to expect, I think, at the time, and it was a huge hit. It warranted two sequels. But I think you wouldn't have a ton of the current action films that you have, like um, John Wick, um, a lot of the Gerard Butler action films, I think, uh, like Olympus Has Fallen, that trilogy, um, even though that almost goes back to that 80s action hero cookie cutter where there's a, there's, there's a goal or a damsel you know, I'm not saying he's a roided out 80s hero, but it almost follows <laughs> that same that same formula. And, you know, I think the Born Identity was really the start of that fast, fluid, small, but multiple hit action. And a lot of that has to do with, like, uh, Jackie Chan, 
being in action movies. And yeah, his, really inspiring. His, yeah, his judo. How to instead of instead of take hits and throw them back, Jackie Chan's method is avoiding hits and and parrying them. Basically, it's a lot more methodical and kind of strategic yeah. action instead of just yes. you know brute force. Yeah, and so whenever you go and look at John Wick films, you don't see those big haymaker Mike Tyson hits. You see. It's very calculated. Yeah, you're seeing the Jackie Chan judo type hits and things like that, and it makes those films very entertaining. Um, a lot of it has to do with actual combat and actual martial arts. Jackie Chan, I think, had a big influence on it. But as far as films that changed the game, you know, Jackie Chan stuff is a lot of is a lot of judo and his own stunt coordination, which he's a fantastic stunt coordinator himself. Um, but I think Born Identity is like the film that changed the future of action movies, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, I honestly. I think I've seen parts of the Born Identity out of out of Grandma and Paps because I know um, our grandfather. I know our grandfather is like a big uh, a big fan of the Born Identity series, but I don't yeah. I don't actually think I've seen a full Born Identity movie or Born movie. I, I don't know. If, yeah, are they born, all Born Identity? Like no, I don't, they're they're Born series. Okay, that's what I thought. I, I thought Born Identity was just one of the films. Yeah, and there's but, currently five of them. Yeah, so uh, I I can't really say much to that, but um, I mean, from what we've talked and what I've seen in videos, that that definitely I think is the case. Um, and, and like Tyler was saying, you know, those aspects of a little bit more calculated action instead of just the you know, the movie action that everybody knows from the 80s and 90s, which still is super cool and fun to watch. Um, the Born Identity seems to to have uh, shifted that. Okay, so the next Game Changer movie that I brought to the table is uh, the first Spider-Man movie with Tobey Maguire, directed by Sam Raimi. Uh, it's a lot, of, a lot of people's fan favorite. Uh, they just really, they love Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man. Um, for me personally, the reason why I like Spider-Man just as a side note so much is because I, I really relate to his character. You know, he's, he's always, uh, there's always some kind of love interest, whether it be Gwen Stacy or Mary Jane. And, and for him, like he's, he's trying to respect them best that he can. And he, he wants to protect them and, uh, because he's Spider-Man. And if people know, like if his enemies know, who he is and who he loves and they could potentially get hurt. So he's always trying to find a balance there, but also he is a character that is just full of integrity. Like he will do what's right. Even if he ends up being the one who loses, you know, if he can protect somebody, but he doesn't get the girl, he'll do that. You know, if he can, um, if he's the one who gets beat up, but he, he protects all the citizens, you know, he does that. And it, the, the classic with great power comes great responsibility. I just love that. Not only that, but he, as Peter Parker, he's a photographer, which I de- directly relate to because I'm a photographer. Um, but I don't want, I just wanted to preface this because I don't want people to think I'm choosing Spider-Man as a game changer movie just because I like the character. But realistically, this movie was released on May 3rd, 2002. And the reason why it is a game changer in the film industry is because it was the first comic book movie that was really taken serious by the, uh, really taken seriously by the the general public, not just comic book fans. So there were there were plenty of superhero movies that came out before Spider Man. It certainly wasn't the first. There was Blade. There was the Batman movies with Michael Keaton. There was the TV shows, uh, you know, Batman and Superman TV shows. Uh, there was there was plenty of other superhero movies that came out before Spider-Man. But Spider-Man 
was the first one that that the general audience, non-comic book fans, really respected and enjoyed as a movie. And the reason why it was game-changing is because it it introduced what is now kind of like, it's kind of pop culture, all these superhero movies. You have the entire MCU, plus you have the, the DC live-action movies. And there's just kind of been this culture that has stemmed from that, that Spider-Man really was the, the front-runner in. And that's why a lot of people, um, even though there have been other iterations of live-action Spider-Man, really still love Tobey Maguire and the Sam Raimi movies as their favorite is because that's what they nostalgically connect with. And I mean, they are they are good movies, aside from just being um, a game-changer in that sense. They they are fun to watch. Yeah, and I think another reason why it was a big game-changer is the that Spider-Man movie had a $139 million budget. And at the box office, it made $825 million. Yeah. So not only did audiences really pay attention and connect with it well because the characters, the acting, the writing was very w- well done. Sam Raimi did a great job as director. Um, yeah. but, but the studio pays attention whenever this kind of a return on investment happens. So in my opinion, once they saw that and their eyes lit up with dollar signs, this is the biggest film, in my opinion, that led to the current MCU and how we got it. Yeah, which is crazy because uh, I'll be interested to see how they do it in Spider-Man 3. They could potentially tie it into the MCU. But this this movie was was outside of the popular MCU that we see today. Yeah. Iron Man, which came out in 2008, and Spider-Man was in 2002. Iron Man was the first official uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. But Spider-Man kind of pioneered uh, and, and set up the stage for that to be such a success yeah for sure Um, and and also by this point you know that 1989 batman with michael keaton everybody loved that that was huge um and then they did another one later on with uh with keaton in batman returns and then from there like the batman movies really kind of went downhill with val kilmer george clooney so you got to remember at this point the the christian bale batman isn't a thing yet so Batman was kind of on the back burner because the last couple films were kind of lackluster and, and lame. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, Blade was a rated R film. And while it got a pretty great reception, it was received well by, by like horror fans and not really comic book fans, even though it does follow the comics pretty decently. And I enjoy that film. Uh, whenever something's rated R, you have a very limited crowd you can show that to. And I mean, that's why kids movies make the most money. Yeah. And PG, PG movies make the most money because it can have the biggest audience. You got to buy three tickets if you and your two right. kids got to go. Yeah. And, and with with the Batman movies, for example, which came out well before this, you know, there were some Batman movies in like the 80s, 90s. You know, the TV show was was well before that. This isn't uh, it's not like Spider-Man was introducing a new idea. But those Batman movies, while they can be fun to watch, some aren't aren't great uh, by any by any means, but those movies were like they were pretty campy. You know, they they were fun to watch, but they were definitely comic book movies. And you were you were seeing something that was just like okay, like this is this is an idea that's fun to watch, but you know, this guy is running around in a pretty tight suit that's supposed to look yeah. like a bat. You know, Spider Man introduced something that in that brought in a fictional idea that was still kind of you know Spider Man's. Any superheroes really are kind of campy yeah. because they're they're unrealistic. But it, it introduced it and brought it into the real world and made it seem like, okay, 
this could be, I could see how this could be possible. It was almost like it was a little bit more respected. Yeah. Um, and I think a reason for that is that like the 1989 Batman, it pulls stuff like straight off the page. It feels like yeah. it's a comic book that you're just watching in motion. Whereas that 2002 Spider-Man, it's really grounded in like a realistic world. It it, it mm-hmm. looks like New York because it is right. Like things are to scale. Whereas if you go look, watch those Batman movies, Gotham is supposed to be Victorian slash like a, a gothic mm-hmm. looking city and things are very misproportioned. Things seem out of place. Whereas that Sam Raimi Spider-Man, everything's like pretty on point and it looks like he's swinging through New York because he yeah. is. And, and the reason why we're using the Batman movies as an example is because they were the probably the biggest superhero movies and Batman is one of the most recognizable characters in just comic book history. And so that's the best thing to compare it to as far as what came before it. Um, and and on top of that, those Batman movies, like they were almost always in superhero character with Spider-Man. The reason I think a, a reason why it connected with the general audience is because uh, Peter Parker is such an engaging character just by himself. And so Tobey Maguire, I think that's one of the things that he did well was was play Peter Parker and kind of show the struggles of being uh, you know, a high school student who likes a girl, but then he gets these powers and and he can't tell her who he is, even though he really wants to. And then his uncle dies, so he's he's struggling with dealing with that, and he wants to to live uh, a life of integrity and use his powers for good. Um, and so you see both sides of it with the other superhero movies. It was really just an opportunity to take something straight from the comics, put it on the screen, and superhero. Uh, fans love that just because they got to see it in a live action format. So um, just one last thing, not that numbers are everything, but like Tyler said, Spider-Man grossed um, $825 million U.S. million. It is number 82 of the highest grossing films of all time. Just statistically, superhero movies have become a, kind of a mainstay in the film industry. Um, nine of the top 25 highest grossing films are superhero movies. Um, I think in the top 10, there are like three Avengers movies. Avengers Endgame was the highest grossing film until they re-released Avatar, which I will actually be talking about in yeah. a little bit. But that it's, uh, you know, that's that really is, um, I think, important to look at as, as far as why Spider-Man was a game changer. Yeah, I think, like I said, we wouldn't have MCU stuff without that and it's really changed the culture it's it's just a game changer in general with how they did effects and that's a rare take where um usually whenever people make comic book video game movies anything like that uh whenever they take creative liberties they usually ruin it but for some reason somehow sam raimi whenever he did the aesthetics for that film uh even though it doesn't follow the comics that that closely uh, I mean, he gets his powers when he's a senior. That's not right. He organically can shoot webs. That's not right. Um, they, somehow it's still great. It yep. still fits. Uh, it still works. The sequels are pretty decent, especially the second one. Um, I think that's a rare case where uh, the sequel is better than the original. There's there's very, very few of those. Um and I'm about to talk about another one where the sequel is better than the original with Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Such a good movie. Yeah. <laughs> so good. So I watched this when I was pretty young. And that's another thing about me and Greg. Greg, not so much, maybe a little bit, but definitely me. I watched films 
that I probably shouldn't have been watching at a very young age, mainly thanks to my grandfather yeah. or, my, or my dad. They were almost all super violent. Yeah, whenever like a five or six-year-old wants to watch The Running Man with Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> which is rated R. Which is crazy. I mean, anyways. So Terminator 2 Judgment Day, uh, the reason this is a, this is definitely a game changer is uh, I just having a main character that's completely CGI. Um, from top to bottom, there's full scenes where the T-1000 Terminator, which is the villain for the film, is CGI. And something that's even better about it is that whenever he is in that CGI form, he looks chrome or like liquid metal. Um, he can liquefy or solidify himself at any moment. Um, he can break pieces off and regain them. Uh, and the, the way this looks so good is all thanks to ILM, uh, which is a, which is a special effects company that w- I can't remember exactly when they, when their inception happened, but they have been affecting the film industry in a positive way ever since. You would be surprised to see how many films they have worked on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Their, their list is enormous for films that they've done work with, but what's even crazier is just films you've seen where you may not even know special effects are happening and they're responsible for it. Um, they are a big part of you know Star Wars and a lot of their special effects and practical effects, but they're also probably the first company to really get right the CGI in a live-action space. Uh, Greg talked about Toy Story. You know, whenever the whole film is CG, you can really get away with a lot. With this, if CG isn't spot on in a live action film, it can really stand out and just take the viewer out of the film, ruin things. I mean, how many films have you seen where CG ruins things? And, you know, it's very obvious when it's going on. Whereas I think in Terminator 2 Judgment Day, it's like spot on. It actually pulls you into the movie more. It makes you afraid that this thing that can take any form, be anybody kind of, uh, which actually kind of stems back to the thing where the T-1000 imitates John Connor's adopted, adopted mother and imitates her, which is something that happens in the thing pretty often is, you know, it, 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 it assimilates people. Um, so just to put this into perspective at the time, this came out, this film came out in 1991, which is prior to Toy Story. Yeah, Toy Story, I forgot to mention earlier, but it came out in 1995. Yeah. Um, And so it actually took ILM 10 months to do all the effects, which at the time was pretty heavy, and they had a $5 million budget, and at the time, the company wasn't the monster that it is now. They had 35 people working for those 10 months, spent $5 million just to make the T-1000 for that film. And basically something else that is very small detail that the Terminator 2 changed for the future of the film industry is it put a it put a colon after the after the number and put a subtitle. I think it may have been the first sequel to do this. Yeah, I mean I don't I don't really know, um, but that certainly wasn't a, a popular thing um, up until that point. And it's kind of a fun fact, the director, who is uh, James Cameron, he, he like, has this thing where almost all of his movies, I think all, all of his movies either start with A or T. Yeah. Am I correct yeah, in that? I, maybe I'd have to look. 
like Titanic, Avatar. Elite Battle Angel. Yeah, I'd have to look at the rest of his stuff. Yeah, but that's kind of like his thing, just a little side but note. He, back, he loves doing that. Yeah, back to ILM real quick, uh, which is Industrial Light and Magic is the full name of the company, but everybody just refers to them as ILM. Uh, their website's great. They have their full catalog of everything they've worked on it on there. Um, they're basically like the Apple of special effects. They have everything very clean cut. Their their form and function are in line with each other. They for Terminator Two, they won the 1991 Academy Award for Best Visual Effects and the BAFTA Award for Best Visual Effects as well. And I think without Terminator Two, Judgment Day, you definitely wouldn't have what Greg's going to talk about next, which is Avatar. But Without Terminator 2 and ILM doing the T-1000, you wouldn't have nearly... Somebody would have figured it out eventually, but you wouldn't have nearly the films in the 90s for sure in the early 2000s with CGI characters in live-action spaces uh, the way you do. Like, Just think about Jurassic Park for a good example. It's a live-action space with dinosaurs, and I'll, I'll look this up real quick, but I think ILM may have done the dinosaurs as well yeah, i'm not sure um but you definitely wouldn't have that uh things like that and it's a lot of little little details you take for granted that there was this time when cgi took over doing practical effects because it was easier cheaper to do there was less lead time on people making models and animatronics when you could just film it change it later yeah and, and a lot of times uh production companies like this or you know, visual effects, special effects companies, they they are pioneering things specifically for these films. Like it's the first time it's ever been done. You know, for example, if we look back at, at Pixar, like I said earlier, they were they were coming up and creating programs just to do the things that they had envisioned to do for that film. And companies like ILM will do the same thing. You know, if they have an idea, for example, if they want to make a a uh, a character that is completely chrome and reflective and can shape shift and morph. A lot of times, those companies will pioneer programs and computer software specifically for the purpose of whatever they want to do, and then that allows the movie industry to use those tools that they created specifically for that film, yeah, and apply them and use it in in other movies for other purposes. But you know that's why these movies are such a big deal is because they're the first to do it. They yeah. literally created what is now used by basically anybody. Yeah, any anybody and everybody in, in, in film and television. Um, I mean, if you just look at Game of Thrones, for instance, uh, in my opinion, one of the best on-screen battles is Battle of the Bastards. And if you really go in-depth to the special effects of that, um, so much of it is thanks to ILM because you wouldn't have a lot of the technology that is then spread out throughout the industry without them. So just real quick, some other films that ILM has worked on that you might not realize or take take for granted, just that they do effects. All of the Star Wars films, all of the Indiana Jones films, E.T. Um, let's see here, Willow. They, they, they did practical effects a lot of the time as they restate. They did a lot of practical effects at the time as well, and they still do, but just uh, computer graphics is really where they shine. Uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which we could spend an entire episode just talking about how that film was made and the insanity that ensued of how detailed they were. And actually, I actually really like that movie. Um, let's see. Yeah, well, one thing um, we kind of want to give a little shout out is to the uh, the, the Corridor crew. They're a visual effects um, company from 
Los Angeles, and they're basically, I'd say they're independent artists. I mean, they're they're yeah. an official corporation, but yes. they they started out just um, just two guys, Sam and Nico, and then they built up, and now they they have a, like a large crew that they work with. But they they'll do this series on YouTube uh, on their Corridor Crew channel where they will break down and explain why these specifically CGI. Um, why these different movies were so groundbreaking at the time. They they do have an episode on the T-1000 and why that was so awesome. And it does it does hold up pretty well to today's standards. Yeah. Uh, some more movies ILM worked on, all the Terminator movies, all the Transformer movies, all of the TV series for Star Wars, like The Mandalorian. Um, let's see. All of the MCU. Every single MCU film, they've been involved in some aspect. Um, and then stuff that's in production, the newest Jurassic World, Dominion, uh, the newest Thor, the Batman, uh, the Obi-Wan Kenobi series. They are just in, in everything that, you know, you, you think is, is cut clean, really, really well done and really well produced, uh, is, is pretty much thanks to them. I mean, they handle so much stuff. Um, there's a, there's a lot more that, that T2 has done for films in the future, which is, in the in the original Terminator, uh, the T eight hundred is the villain sequel. He's the hero, and there's a bigger villain uh, that that's been done in the film industry since, but not that often, and never has it been pulled off as well as in T two. Um, so f- without this, you probably wouldn't have a a ton of CGI characters in a lot of films. So yeah, the next one we're going to talk about is all CGI characters in the film with avatar so greg this is your pick yeah so for avatar now this is james cameron avatar i want to specify that because they do have a live action version of avatar the last airbender and even though i love the animated show the live action movie is possibly the worst movie ever made i mean i just i absolutely hate it i'd rather watch cube which is a film from Canada with a $15,000 budget than watch The Last Airbender. Like, The Last Airbender, I'm not even going to get into it because it makes me mad, the the live-action movie by M. Night Shyamalan. But anyways, Avatar, uh, directed by James Cameron, came out in um, December of 2009, and it is considered right now the highest-grossing film of all time at $2.84 billion, with a B, worldwide um just to put that into context though how insane is it that 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 it it would almost be beaten by jaws if jaws earned with inflation currently what yeah what that made it's insane and i mean there's there's a couple things that go into um like a a film's uh total gross um profit or, or gross um box office box office earnings but like Avatar had a couple re-releases right below it on the list is Avengers Endgame. I still kind of see Avengers Endgame as being the the number one highest grossing because it basically did it in one shot. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I, I'm sure that Endgame will have future re-releases as well. Yeah. And I'm sure it'll crush that. So, But the reason why Avatar is game-changing uh, game isn't because it was the highest grossing film considered. Um, it it's because of what they pioneered and what they did with CGI characters and world building. So as far as as far as I am aware, that is the first movie. It was basically a 
proof of concept movie that you could create an entire world and entire characters completely 100% CGI and have it look photo real. That's really that's really where the um, the entire um, like concept of CG is, is proven is in photorealism. If it looks like what your eye would see in real life. And that's why if you've ever watched a movie and be like, oh, you know, that CGI was kind of bad. It's not because uh, the artists didn't care or they were bad artists. It's it's more or less because your eye is is very trained. It has years and years of experience of learning what is real and how things naturally move and, and how light affects objects. And so whenever you see CGI that looks bad, it's not because artists didn't put a lot of work into it it's because they can't see your air quotes well i mean (laughs) they they should feel them they should feel them in my no but but um but avatar was again like a like a proof of concept because um they were able to basically create an entire world that looked photo real and it still holds up to today and that was released in 2009 2009 and so think of all the movies since then to have crazy real looking CGI like for example the Transformers movie with um directed by by Michael Bay you know that was another movie right around that time that kind of pioneered entirely CG characters and they looked real and really there's there's probably almost every single movie that is released now has some kind of CGI yeah at some point i mean even even John Wick yeah you know you think an action film wouldn't really but there's in John Wick 3 there's a huge knife fight and really they're just walking around with handles and the blades aren't there the blades are CG yeah and and so avatar was was able to prove like okay it is possible for you to have entire characters that look real that stand beside actual actors and you can mesh the two. So what that does is it allows you to to really expand uh, what you can have in a movie and the ideas that you can put on film uh, because there are some things that simply can't be done. For example, superheroes. Like powers don't actually exist. You can't actually shoot lasers from your eyes. But if you can make it look real through a computer, maybe that's an idea you want to explore. So for example, in Avatar, they were basically it's basically aliens they're on a they're on a an alien planet interacting with the species there that are kind of like humanoid they yes. they look like humans but they're super tall and they're blue but even though that is a really outlandish and fictional idea it looks real and um that was that was that f- the first or at least the most extensive CGI world. Yeah, and p- part uh, of the reason that has the box office that it does is so many people went to re- rewatch it. I know the average viewer saw it, I think, three times. Yeah. And a lot of people at the time were saying it was like being on vacation. Yeah. They went to the theater to go to vacation to this world. They really enjoyed it. And also, uh, there was a big, big push for 3D films in the 80s, especially. 90s, not so much. Early 2000s, not so much. But Avatar was one of the first ones with... 3d how we currently know it which i really enjoy actually especially in uh, imax 3d so um that was actually one of the first films to bring 3d back in 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 normal color palettes whereas the 80s 3d i think i don't think they were the red and blue cheesy 3d glasses but i think that, that the color palettes were messed up in some of the 3d films yeah. and, and and honestly like you know it wasn't just the computer generated imaging that was groundbreaking it was everything that went into that so with motion capture which is basically um whenever a camera or 
um, some kind of technology is able to capture the movement of physical actors, um, that was really enhanced and that, that was really pushed forward and there were leaps and bounds that were taken there and you know it allowed for more natural movements of these completely computer generated and fictional characters because they're capturing the movements of the actual actor. So it, it was kind of a, a step in between just the completely computer generated and then also the real. So yeah, does that some, makes sense. Some other small details that that film was a first for is uh, with the motion capture, like Greg was saying, they had some of that technology before, but they really refined it while, while making that film with James Cameron. But uh, if you've ever seen someone filming something like uh making it behind the scenes of a video game where the actor has a camera that's on like a, they have a head rig on and a little pole with a camera pointed at their face. Their face will have a bunch of dots on them and that's mocap just for like face and lip movements. Yep. And I believe that may have been the first film that they really refined that on. If it even existed prior to that at all, I don't even think that it did. And that technology is now used in film, TV, music, video, video games. It's all across the media board. Yeah, the reason why CGI is uh, so important to talk about in the film industry is because it is used for sometimes the smallest little things. And the reason why not many people notice it is because there are amazing artists whose job is to make it so that you don't know that they're using CGI. Yeah, if you That's don't, the whole if... <laughs> purpose of CGI is that you're not supposed to know that it's actually yeah, there. If it... I'm sure you've seen films and you haven't noticed it. And that means the artist is doing their job correctly. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, with Avatar, obviously it's, you can tell that the, the giant, you know, eight, eight foot, nine foot creature who's blue isn't real, but you see them standing next to somebody and be like, oh, well, it's pretty convincing. It's possible. It's possible. <laughs> I mean, maybe they I found, might be stupid. Maybe they found might be somebody like, where did they get this? this creature from what planet did they travel to um but you know that's that kind of technology is used in tv shows and and everything we watch and so that's why uh, i wanted to talk about how avatar was groundbreaking is because it really was just a proof of concept yeah so so uh just gonna wrap this episode up so something i wanted to say is if you guys have any recommendations of under like very under the radar films that me and greg maybe haven't seen which is highly unlikely i i watch a ton of movies uh you can always send it to us on in our dms um my instagram handle is mr 46 motorsports greg yours is uh it's greg miller dot films uh on instagram so that's g-r-e-g-g-m-i-l-l-e-r dot films um a lot of people forget the second g yeah, yeah so, that's, a, that's a problem. I, I do, I do actually have to life. specify that, yeah. Um, but, yeah, feel free to, to just send us uh, some messages. That's our that's our personal accounts, yeah. but we are eventually going to have um, socials dedicated just to the podcast so yep. that you guys can interact with us and um, and we can get to know you better as, as listeners. Yeah. Um, so. Greg, what next week is your th- – this week was my topic pick. Greg, next week is yours. What do you, uh, what do you got planned for us? Hmm. Well, it's tough because, you know, I definitely want to do an episode where we talk about the MCU, but I kind of want to plan that out a little bit more. I think it would be fun to talk about maybe movies that are underrated or maybe independent projects or, yeah, I like that. or YouTube films. Um, yeah, we can do like short films or uh, 
low budget but great films. Yeah, yeah, movies that are that tell a good story. You know, maybe they didn't have all the money to really um, to do it as as spectacular as maybe they wanted to, but nonetheless, they worked with what they got. And I think that's yeah. kind of the magic of being a filmmaker is that you have an idea and you just want to share it with somebody. You know, it doesn't mean that the movie's bad. It's just, yep. you know, it, it's just different. Um, also, uh, what platforms are we on all now? Because we weren't on Apple, but now we are. Yeah, so we're on Spotify. Uh, we're on Apple Podcasts, which is a really, really popular podcasting platform. I think it's something like 80-some percent of podcast listeners listen on Apple. Yeah. Um, I do believe we're on Google Podcasts. And then an, I don't, I'm not super familiar with, you know, podcast specific platforms but we upload on anchor and then it sends them out yeah um but at the very least you can know that we're on spotify and apple yeah if you have a preference yeah as well as google yeah and something else i wanted to say is uh if you have an iphone can you please do us a favor and do a five-star review and and write a quick review even if it's one word that helps us out climb the charts we don't have too much competition in this category and the way you get noticed and get more listeners is by climbing charts uh, if you don't have an iPhone, steal someone's, <laughs> even if it's just for the review, and then give it back, and then run away. Yeah, please, I yeah. would really appreciate it. If you guys, if you guys enjoyed this, obviously five star would be best, um, just because it, it, you know, it definitely makes the podcast look good, and they they tend to push it out and. Um, they put it at the top of, of searches, but yeah, so we just want to, we want to conclude and say that we're going to try to do weekly uploads best we can. Um, and we, you know, we're really excited to just share our love for movies with you guys. Uh, and hopefully we can, you know, start to have a little bit more interaction. Yeah. We're going to have a couple episodes on time travel movies, uh, episodes on comedies, episodes on science fiction, stuff that we really enjoy. And maybe I like talking about stuff that I feel that I enjoy, but I feel like that's under the radar. I think it'd be fun to just, just do like a, like a, um, a listener's episode where we just talk about literally anything that people suggest. So like if, if you're a fan of Grey's Anatomy, I have never watched it, but I would watch an episode have, or two of I Grey's have, Anatomy just so I could talk about I've it. I've watched it, but not voluntarily. Yeah, or if you, if you know, if you like, uh, if you like horror movies, or if you, you know, if there's maybe an independent film that you've seen that uh, you would like to recommend, you know, even if it's stuff that we haven't seen. Um, yeah, we'll probably be asking we'll for it. we'll probably be asking for horror recommendations uh, at the beginning of October, and then towards the end of October, we'll do we'll do a horror episode. Uh, I have some of my some of my favorites as well, and ones I I enjoy that I've seen. Um, I also really want to do probably in the winter time we'll be doing a war movie episode, uh, mm-hmm. and for that episode we'll have a guest or two on. And that's another thing we wanted to talk about in the future, is if you guys have any guests you'd like to see on, or any access to guests that we that we could have that are related to this field, uh, we would much appreciate any info or input. Uh, so just feel free to shoot those over our way, and once we get the social pages up for the podcast itself we'll be sure to let you know yeah so this has been uh an episode of just Just a tangent Tangent. with greg miller and tyler brewer and uh thank you guys for joining we'll see you guys on the flippity flip (laughs) (laughs) frankly my dear i don't you're gonna need a bigger boat so So we're going we don't need my dear keep the change you filthy animal it was a bad choice You're killing me, Smalls. So you're telling me there's a chance. Life moves pretty fast. To be continued.